We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. I think it's my turn to start. Yes. And very fitting because, man, oh man, this book. <laughs> Welcome to Reread. It is the last book of the Chronicle of Narnia series. Whoa. The last battle. <laughs> oh boy, this is going to be interesting. So. What a time we're going to have today. It is by far the darkest of the series, which, hey, if you wanted your Game of Thrones crossover with Chronicles of Narnia, come aboard with me, guys, because this is the book for you. Lots of animals getting killed. Also humans. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. But they, they're color mean, so it's fine. I mean, the humans are also getting killed that are not color means. Yeah, well, I guess that mostly happens off screen because, I mean, we'll get into this, but Care Paravel gets taken over by, by the color means at, at some point, And it's said that everyone in there has been murdered. I mean, arguably, I, I don't want to get too far into this, but arguably anyone who goes through the stable door automatically dies. Oh, that's a fair point. So that does mean that we watch Eustace, Jill, and... Tyrion. Tyrion? Is that how we're saying his name? I'll die. Yes. Tyrion Lannister makes an appearance in this book. So really that Game of Thrones crossover. But (laughs) oh, God, the quote unquote last. Well, okay. let's summarize first, because there's some great comedy in this book and I can't wait to talk about it. (laughs) All right. We open on an ape and a donkey. And the ape is, uh, they're in a, like, maybe, like, queer platonic relationship in which the ape is abusing the donkey. It's not a good time. The ape's name is Shift, and the donkey is Puzzle. And, uh, one day, they see something floating in a river by their place, and Shift makes Puzzle the donkey go out and get in the water instead of him, because he's an asshole. <laughs> And poor Puzzle almost drowns getting this thing, but he manages to get it. Turns out it's a lion skin. And uh, then Shift comes up with this ingenious plot to turn the lion skin into like a coat for Puzzle and then pretend that Puzzle is Aslan so that they can get whatever they want, essentially. Um, And he convinces Puzzle this is Aslan's will. And we should say that specifically Shift wants. Oranges and bananas. That's what he really wants. And he tempts Puzzle by saying, you can get like sugar cubes or yes. something. As an article I read pointed out, specifically his issues are with the trade in Nardia and what sort of imports are coming in. Uh. <laughs> this is all commentary <laughs> on trade. Oh, perfect. The point being, I think, is that they're super trivial things that they are... Uh, Selling out the entire nation of Narnia and abusing religion for. So yeah, uh, basically then our focus shifts to who we're told straight up is the last king of Narnia. There's no like 
subterfuge here. Like, we know immediately this is bad times. The book literally starts in the last days of Narnia. Oh, yes, that's fair. You're set up to know, oh, boy. Bad times are coming. I got a bad feeling about this. Yeah. Anywho, so we got Tyrion. I guess that's what we're, how we're pronouncing this name. Yes, Tyrion Lannister. And uh, his also queer platonic life partner, Jewel the Unicorn. <laughs> this is really a battle of queer platonic life partners. It really is. And him getting news that a whole bunch of dryads are getting murdered in the Lantern Waste on the edge of Narnia. So he and Jewel go off to find out what's going on, and they discover a whole bunch of color means who have enslaved the talking horses and are using them to haul lumber and stuff. And so they immediately rush in and kill one of the color means for, like, you know, enslaving someone. And then these, these idiots, <laughs> despite the fact that, okay... These are foreign people in Narnian land, enslaving Narnian people. Tyrion's like, I shouldn't have rushed at this guy who didn't even have a weapon and kill him. That was so not noble of me. I must turn myself in. So they do that. Okay. To be fair, they asked the like horse what's going on. And the horse has said Aslan has commanded all of this. So they think they're being in defiance of Aslan, and so they're turning themselves in for Aslan's judgment, not necessarily the color means judgment. That said, bafflingly stupid. Yes, very, very <laughs> stupid. And regardless of whose judgment they're turning themselves, I feel like really the guilt is not about necessarily going against Aslan, but about killing this dude. <laughs> like, yes, they're ashamed of killing this dude who just happens to be unarmed. There's a whole weird honor system here. Yeah. Anywho, so then they're brought before Shift, and they're like, where's Aslan? What's going on? There's all a whole bunch of talking animals around who are asking why Aslan wants them to be enslaved, and Shift is like, yep, you're all gonna go work for the color means, and blah, blah, blah. And, yeah, it's just, like, very obviously lying, and there are a couple of people who pick up on that, including a cat named Ginger, and... Towards the end, the king realizes just how full of this whole thing is and tries to speak up, but um, he did turn himself in, so then he's just dragged away and tied up to a tree before he can, like, reveal that something strange is going on. So then he is tied up to this tree, being very sad about all of it, and he prays first to Aslan, and then he thinks about, like, Actually, wait, I skipped something. Sorry. First, before this, he is able to somehow still see from his tree, like, everything that's going on with Shift. And as, like, the sun is setting, then Shift is like, all right, Aslan's going to come out for a few minutes from the stable and, like, show himself to you. And he's got a big bonfire lit. Like, there's a lot of mysterious lighting going on here. And then uh, we see very awkwardly some lion-shaped things stumble out of the stable. And... Hang out for a couple seconds before heading right back in. Yeah, and everyone's tricked, I guess, because nobody, Tyrion specifically, has never seen a lion, ironic, as a Lannister. <laughs> He's not sure, because, I, I don't know, I guess lions are extinct now in this world. But one had to be killed in order for the, like, skin to come down. Oh, what? It, yeah. 
Well, yeah, I was killed by some random hunter that the book explicitly tells us it's not going to tell us about. I don't <laughs> Well, I don't know. Anyway, first time apparently Tyrion has ever seen a line. And so he's like, I'm not sure. But then he remembers like the whole nonsense and he's like, that's for sure not Aslan. Yeah. So first he prays Aslan for help. And then when like no one shows up, he's like, oh, but I remember that there were these kids who kept showing up in times of Narnia's like greatest danger to help. So if Aslan can't come himself, I want some kids. <laughs> Why? <Wild. laughs> He's literally like, he says, children, children, friends of Narnia, quick, come to me. This is his prayer. I'm telling you, this book might be the funniest book of this series. The book is wild. But yeah, so then he's plunged into this dream where he's in this strange room where there are seven people. And we, as people who have read the previous books, are like, ah, our protagonist. They're able to see him, too, um, but when he tries to, to speak to them, he can't. And then he breaks out of the dream, only for two of the people who he'd seen in this vision to show up and untie him from the tree. Um, and these people are Eustace and Jill, our protagonist from The Silver Chair, and also Eustace from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Which I, we can now definitively say is the best Right? Like, is that the best book? I guess you like Magician's Nephew more. I still like Magician's Nephew more, but it's a close second. Yeah. This is a close third, but we'll get to that. Oh, goodness. So the three of them (laughs) steal away, and they kind of, you know, exchange stories about what's happening and what's going on. One of the things we find out is that because of timey-wimey shenanigans, it's been longer for Eustace and Jill since the dream than it's been for Tyrion. And they had this whole elaborate plan that they hatched with the others to, like, go get the rings from the magician's nephew that are buried under a tree in the backyard of someone else's house now. And, like, get these rings and use them to get to Narnia because they knew that they needed to go to Narnia for help. And so Peter and Edmund snuck into the back of this house, dug up these rings, and then they were all meeting at this train station when suddenly Jill and Eustace are yanked into Narnia. This will be significant later. What is funny is that it's couched in this story that is completely insignificant. They spent like three pages setting up this whole plan. None of it matters. And it's just like a weird bit of fluff. Well, but it actually is somewhat important. The only... Okay. Well, I suppose... Well, yes. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's finish and going. then we'll explain why it's important. <laughs> um, so anyhow, so then... I feel like, honestly, a lot of this book is also making plans that, like, don't come to fruition. But they do make a plan. They, like, go to this, I guess, they've built these battlements in certain places to, like, help defend Narnia. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But it's a place they're able to go and get food and supplies. And then they sneak back to rescue Jewel. And um, I want to just pause really quick on this sneaking back because we get something that so deeply satisfied me. For literal books... Male characters have been disparaging female characters' ability to, like, do direction things. Yeah. This has happened in multiple books to multiple women, and I've been so bitter about it. But here we get that Jill is actually great at directions. She's the best at directions. So, redemption. I think we solved sexism, guys. I think it's a bit of retconning, because I think even in the silver chair, Eustace 
makes fun of her lack of sense of direction. Yes. Whatever. But it's fine. We're also specifically <laughs> told that Eustace and Jill have been like training to go back to Narnia. So I don't think yeah. it's so much a retcon as like she has gained skills. Because I do appreciate this bit of practicality that none of the others have ever done. Or Eustace and Jill were like, well, Aslan hasn't said we're not going back. So let's like learn archery and like good for them. Plus 10 to navigation skills. Indeed. So they go back, rescue Jewel. And while they're doing that, Jill has like the very smart idea to try and figure out what is going on with this fake Aslan. And she discovers Puzzle, and they take Puzzle out and hear the whole story of everything that's gone down. And they're like, well, awesome. Now we've got the fake Aslan. We'll show everyone that he's fake. And then people will not be following him anymore, and we'll kick out the color means. There's this whole army that's supposed to be coming from Caraparavel. So they debate a little bit about whether they're going to, like, go back to Caraparavel first or go reveal things, but... They have an encounter with some dwarves who they rescue, and they show the fake Aslan, and the dwarves are like, well, you know, all Aslans are fake. I am a false prophet. God is a superstition. And we're just dwarves for dwarves, and they're, like, very angry about everything, and they're like, color means are bad, Narnians are bad, only dwarves are good. So after that encounter, they're like, hey, maybe we should get the army first, which, like, sound plan. So... They go to get the army, only to discover that the army has all been murdered. Oh, hooray. And the color means have taken over. So they're like, okay, guess we'll go back and do the fake Aslan plan now, even though there's, there's like, nothing. So then they go back and discover that um, the ginger, the cat, has been working with the color means. Because both of them are like, okay. So this whole Aslan thing is fake. Super fake. But we can get power out of it. So, you know, who cares? We'll just use Shift and this whole Aslan situation to get what we want. And so when they discover that the puzzle is missing, they, like, come up with this whole plan to be like, oh, hey, by the way, there's a donkey out there impersonating Aslan to throw, I guess, everyone's suspicions off track. So now our heroes who have been eavesdropping are like, shit! <laughs> <laughs> and then because they no longer have puzzle... They're like, okay, so if you want to see Aslan, who, by the way, they're now calling Tashlan because they're arguing that the color means God Tash and then Narnia's God Aslan are the same person. And so they're calling him Tashlan. They're like, Tashlan will no longer be coming out, but anyone who wants to go in can see him. Ginger's like, okay, I'll go in and see him. And this is clearly a plot. But then... Ginger comes out of the stable, terrified and unable to speak, has been turned back into a dumb, a dumb beast, as they say, no longer a talking animal. So everyone's freaked out. And then this, uh, Colorine soldier volunteers to go in, and then dead body of some other dude gets thrown out. There's just a whole lot of shenanigans going on with the stable. Everyone's really freaked out. And, uh, Eventually, <laughs> our heroes come forward and are like, it's all been fake. Narnians, stand up. Let's fight. There's a battle. 
they're very outnumbered. The dwarves are fighting against everyone. Some of the Narnians come back to them. Some of them run away. The color means get reinforcements. It's all, it's chaos. It's chaos. People are dying left and right. People are being thrown into the stable. Including during this battle, both Eustace and then Jill were kind of staying in Tyrion's perspective for all of this. Yeah. So we, we see the kids get thrown in. And then finally... Tyrion goes into the stable, but when he gets in the stable, it's not a stable! Wild! He shows up in this beautiful green area, and there are these lovely seven people there that are, you guessed it, our protagonists from the other books. The kings and queens of Narnia, Sans Susan. Sans Susan. Because Susan likes boys and lipstick. Yes. This is literally the explanation. We should uh, also mention that at first they go in and they actually meet Tosh, who is real. Oh, yes. I forgot all about Tosh. It is described as looking like a bird of prey with four arms. Wherever it walks, there's actually an earlier appearance where it's walking through the forest and everything around it dies. And uh, when Tyrion's thrown in, he brings in with him the Calamine general or whatever. And Tosh basically grabs the Calamine, carries him away. And that's the last we see of Tosh. But he's a, apparently a very spooky guy. Indeed. Super evil. He, he does eat them. Like, specifically what he's doing is he's eating the people that he takes. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. And, yeah, he doesn't just walk away. Peter, I think, I think it's Peter, is like, get gone. And then Tasha's like, ah. Get going, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, yeah, Tyrion has some conversation with the, the kings and queens, and they're like, yeah, we just, like, ended up here. We were on the train station, and then now here we are, and uh, people get keep getting thrown in, and, like, the dwarves who have all been thrown in are, like, over there, but they don't. They think they're still in a stable, and, like, a bunch of stuff is going on. <sighs> and they explained about Susan, who doesn't believe in Narnia anymore, because all she cares about is being a grown-up and boys and lipstick. Ah, uh, we'll get into this, but oh, man. Yeah. You could have just left it there that she doesn't believe in Narnia, and it would have been fine. But no, it has to be very gendered. Yeah, super, super gendered. Anyhow, so then Aslan shows up. <laughs> Finally, after all of this, and he's like, all right, time to end things. I want people to get me. <laughs> all right, then. That's why I'm going to kill everyone in this room. And he opens the door and he wakes up Father Time, who we saw in the last book, and causes the end of Narnia. And I will give Clive credit here. The description of the end of Narnia is a beautiful, riveting sequence. First, like, all of the, the animals start charging in, and the stars fall, and then the little, like, serpent things that we also saw in the last book come out and, like, scour the entire place. And we see a dying sun that Holly and Diggory specifically, like, it reminds them of what they saw in The Magician's Nephew in Charn. It's a whole bunch of cool imagery and stuff going on, but then at the end, 
Asim's like, all right, Peter, close the door. Which I also read something, and I want to just comment here that uh, the Tor article that I read about The Last Battle, the writer of it specifically was disappointed that it was Peter because they were like, it should have been Lucy. She's the one who opens sure. the first door to Narnia that like we see as the audience. So like she should be the one to close it. But it's Peter because he's a man. Well, also, because I think, I don't know if this was intentional, but like St. Peter and the Pearly Gates, you know. Mm, probably. You're probably right. So then after that, uh, Aslan prints his way and he's like, come further up, further in. So they start trekking towards wherever. A couple of things happen on the way there. Like they run into that color mean dude who volunteered to go in. And it turns out like... He really was a good person and worshipped Tash, and then he ran into Aslan and was like, Aslan, how can I be here in clearly what is heaven when I worshipped the wrong person? And Aslan's like, all good prayers go to me, all bad prayers go to Tash, blah, blah, blah. So they find out about that, and then they also realize that the place they're in is like basically a better version of Narnia, like high-def Narnia. <laughs> That's good. Thanks. And yeah, and they keep moving in until they get to a place with gates. And then you know who's f***ing there? Motherfucking Reaper Chief! Uh, yes! Uh, <laughs> best. <laughs> this is the like best part of the entire book. Reaper Chief. I'm the giant rat that makes all of the rules. They go into the city. Like everyone who's ever been on a Narnia adventure except for Susan is there. They see like all the people... They see Strawberry slash Fledge, woo! And Mr. Tumnus, there's actually also a good scene where, like, Mr. Tumnus and Lucy get to talk towards the end and talking about, like, they can see sort of other places that are not Narnia that are, like, connected and can see a version of London. And it turns out the parents are there, like, Lucy and Edmund and Peter and Susan's parents. And then Aslan tells them all that they died. And you and everyone you know are dead. All of you. Because you can't survive it. It's not possible unless you're very, very lucky. And your kids die too. At the train station uh... that they were all meeting at where like coincidentally, like their parents were also using that particular <laughs> train station on that day. And now they're all in Narnia heaven. And basically at the very end, he, like, becomes not just Lion Jesus anymore, but, like, uh, full-on God. Yeah, he turns into Jesus, I think is the implication. And then, uh, it ends. That's the end. And they live, or, well, I suppose they die happily ever after. Yes. Uh, the, the last line, which I feel like we should read because we've been giving last lines for, like, all time. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover in the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Mm. That is how Chronicles of Narnia ends. You know, it's a it's a pretty low bar given how mediocre these books are, so really any anything after this would be better. Yeah. So why don't we, before we fully jump into this, what did you remember of this book? What were your impressions, Casey? I think outside of the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, this was the one I remembered most because I remembered the monkey, uh, which you did not remember. I did not. I remembered the whole scheme with Aslan, uh, fake Aslan. 
I remember everything dying, everyone going into like heaven and having that moment with all the animals being decided which side they go on. Because um, when all the animals entered, they, they basically look at Aslan's face. And if they say, ew, gross, they go one way into the Shadowlands. And if they're like, ooh, cute, I want to pet you, they go into heaven. So I remembered that. And I remember being like, oh, so this is like Revelations as a kid. And I remember also Susan not being there and being puzzled by that, especially given that their parents get into heaven. And I'm not sure why their parents do. Like, do we know if their parents are actually good people? Do they believe in Jesus? Do they believe in anything? I don't know. But apparently they believe in it more than Susan, who is now completely alone, by the way. Yes. Oh, <laughs> God, we'll get into Susan. We'll get into Susan. Oh. So what about you? What did you remember? So it's interesting because I know when I read this book or when I reread it, because I did, I think, reread it more than I did The Silver Chair, sort of. I would only reread the last bit. I didn't really care about any of the shenanigans pre-Narnia Heaven because they're really sad and depressing and messed up. And as a child, I was not there for that, which is not to say the Narnia Heaven bits aren't sad and depressing and messed up, just in a different way, I think. But yeah, so my the interesting thing is I remember barely anything from pre-the Narnia Heaven stuff. Like, I remembered that Eustace and Jill were there. I knew there was a unicorn because there's a unicorn on my cover. <laughs> and I remembered the door, the like stable door thing, people getting thrown in. And that's pretty much it from like pre. But after that, like I remembered obviously Susan not being there, everyone else being there, the fact they were actually dead the whole time, the color mean dude and the whole conversation about like good prayers, bad prayers, which I think is one of the most interesting parts of religion that Clive decides to roll with. And I remembered Reepicheep being there, as he should be. And like, yeah, the stuff about like the whole world and its heaven and all of that stuff. So like pretty much everything after and I remember the world ending, obviously. So like everything after <laughs> Tyrion goes through the door was pretty like I've pretty much vividly remembered it. But everything before that was Totally brand new. And I, I did think this time maybe I would enjoy that more because I'm more able to deal with like darker stuff now. So I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll like it. You're older and more bitter. Yeah. Turns out I still don't. <laughs> uh, no opinions were changed. Uh, the best part of this book is Reaper Chief. <laughs> yes, I, I, okay. Basically, I feel like I had the inverse version of your experience because I was digging the darkness of the first half of the book, I guess. There's some some major problems. We can get into that. And there are some major questions that I have that I don't think the book adequately answers. But I did like I guess there's there are two things that I feel about this book. One, I like the turn it took. Because it felt like there is more weight to the story, more consequences to the story of making mistakes and having to deal with, with the backlash and the consequences of your actions. At the same time, 
I feel like this book is wildly inappropriate for this series, given that beforehand, you know, sometimes dark, there are dark elements in, in all of the books, but for the most part, they're very cute and charming and innocent little tales. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a darker tone. There are children's books that are much, much darker than even The Last Battle. But it's it's such a jarring shift from what we got, even in like the silver chair to this. I just I don't really know what to make of it. It just doesn't really feel like it's part of the same book series. Yes. And even narratively, like the way the story is told, we don't follow Eustace and Jill. They show up. But for like. 40 pages something, some amount of time. Like, there's not even anyone from our world in this. We're following Tyrion. And they do show up, but then, like, when they're killed slash thrown through the door, we're, we're not following them. We're sticking with Tyrion outside. So, like, there's even, like, a weird way in which, like, all the other books are either, like, following characters from our world, or we have the horse in his boy, which is an anomaly. Yes. <laughs> which, yeah, does follow characters entirely from this world but also like still one has the sense of characters from outside of narnia coming into narnia so it it maintains that and two like susan and edmund and lucy show up but they've also like already been in narnia for a while they're not showing up specifically to help our heroes so there's even a way in which the the way clive chose to show the story through an adult's eyes because um yeah maybe telling it through the kid's eyes where the whole world's about to end, <laughs> they're about to get murdered, might be a little hard. But it, it just doesn't make sense within the frame of the other stories. Yeah. That said, because I'm reminded of my criticism of Prince Caspian, the book, where I felt like the kid's story or the kid's plot line in that book was just the boringest. And I'd wish that the narrative had been flipped and we had focused more on Prince Caspian himself, which might not have worked because Prince Caspian also is the boringest. But basically, this book does that, where it flips the narrative, where it focuses more on the Narnian characters and the kids come in more as sort of side characters or even almost really just cameos in, in some cases. And that I I thought the first like forty some pages were really interesting of setting up this world where Aslan has effectively disappeared and we're coming to this place where all these conditions are ripe for something like this to happen because there's really good characterization with King Tyrion where he's very rash, young, innocent, naive. His beard is still a little scraggly. That's all right, little Hank. It doesn't matter if you have the beard on the outside, as long as you got the beard on the inside. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. We're getting to spend a little more time with this person to understand him and why he's responding the way he's responding to the situation and how they become these fatal flaws that end up resulting in the end of Narnia. Yeah. <laughs> Which is pretty harsh, but I love it. It really does feel like actually grappling with this idea of power and experience. Because, like, again, referring back to Prince Caspian, one of my complaints about that book is, like, why is this teenager 
the right person for the throne. And I feel like this book finally, finally acknowledges, yeah, it's probably not the best to have like a kid in his early 20s in charge of the world. You're going to have a bad time. So in that way, I liked it. There were other other things that contributed to the end of Narnia and everything that I thought were good. Other tie-ins from like past issues. I mean, the whole thing with the dwarves, which I didn't love for some reasons, because again, we talked about like there are multiple dwarves are described by the color of their beards. And in the past, we had a bad dwarf who was a black dwarf, but like black haired is the idea. And we had, like, a good dwarf who was red-haired, and, and we could have given Clive the benefit of the doubt, but we can no longer give him any benefit of the doubt because the dwarves who turn bad in this book are, again, black dwarves. But, that said, we've set up for books now that there are certain Nar- native Narnian populations that are viewed as maybe lesser in some ways. They're basically second-class citizens, yeah. Right, and that, you know, there have been... The dwarves have been, like, mistreated in the past or not always taken as seriously or their needs haven't been listened to. And so the dwarves' own little rebellion is, you know, something that we can see a long time coming. So much for the legendary courtesy of the elves. Speak words we can all understand. We have not had dealings with the dwarves since the dark days. And you know what this dwarf says to that? And the whole issues of Narnia versus Colormine, that's set up in The Horse and His Boy. Um, We can get more into the various problems with the depictions of Colormine in this book, which again, sorry, we have to return to. But like, that was set up. So, you know, there are parts of this book that I'm like, okay, at least like, this isn't coming out of nowhere. These are all issues that have plagued Narnia for a long time. And yeah, Aslan's disappeared. The last time the kids showed up in Narnia is ages ago. Rillian is, I believe, Tyrion's... Yeah, six generations between Rillian and Tyrion. Yes. Yeah, so it's like, I don't know, however many years that is. Right. So, you know, it's it's been a long time. Narnia's been declining. I, I can appreciate at least that this was, there's a setup for this. That said, <laughs> <laughs> truly amazing how fast everything falls apart. Yeah. And yeah, tonally, it doesn't really fit with any of the other books. So it's very jarring to suddenly be in this version of the world it's strange because if you think about back to like silver chair where the grand scheme was to literally dig a hole up through the ground and sneak their way into narnia and it's like this very silly plot to take over narnia then you get to this where it's like a much more realistic means of setting up spies in the country and forming these treasonous allegiances with native narnians and while everyone's distracted over here you send your army over there to take over the castle yes and it's just it depends on your mileage i suppose about whether you like that shift in which case i did and in your case you did not and even even though i like it i can still recognize like it's bad setup because it's out of character for this series just it comes out of nowhere 
you have to like believe, as you said, that, that all the conditions are really set up perfectly so that in the course of like three days, Narnia is doomed and the world ends. But one thing I would like to talk about, because this is something I found interesting, is like, why did this scheme, this clearly dumb scheme of shifts work? Why, why are so many Narnians tricked? The, the, the narrative provides some answers that I more or less find unsatisfying. Like, for example, that Tyrion has never seen a line before. That's very dumb. But yeah, I, I, I want to, I, I would. <laughs> what are your thoughts about that? I'm willing to give everyone the, like, benefit of the doubt on this because, like, not to get into our current day politics, <laughs> but wow, a lot of people are taken in by people I wouldn't, I can see absolutely no reason for them to be taken in by in our current political system. I mean, even just, oh, I saw the other day, like, you know, one of Trump's ads, it showed, like, some picture of rioting, and it was like, do you want to live in Biden's America? And I was like, but that's a picture of Trump's America. That's what's going on right now! I I think that's a good point, because there are some things where there is a passage in here that I find so fascinating. It's on page 29 for me. It's basically when Shift is giving his first monologue, explain what's going on to the, or, well, quote, unquote, explaining what's going on to all the Narnians who are like, what? why is Aslan doing this? Why is he being like this? At this point, Shift is starting to wear human clothing. And he says, I hear some of you are saying, I am an ape. Well, I'm not. I'm a man. And he goes on to explain he's so old and that's why he looks the way he looks. And it's like just such a bald faced lie. And it's almost like challenging people to contradict him on the spot. And, it, and it's like this. I don't know. Yes, we can talk about modern politics because I feel like a lot of that is happening where we are being lied to our faces and for a lot of different reasons, it's so hard to confront that on the spot, to challenge that. And I think that's part of what is happening here. Also, that shift is constantly lying. He's always inventing a new lie. So you can't keep track. It's impossible to keep up. And then when, when you know, some of the creatures say, like, there's a poor old bear who keeps saying, I don't understand. And at that point, shift then turns to insulting the bears and insulting the other animals, saying they're too dumb to understand, they're too dumb to do anything, so they should just let Shift handle it because he's the smartest one, he knows what's up. It's impossible to keep up with the lies, and they're happening so fast, and they're so over the top that you're taken aback. But in between that time where you're taken aback, there's already been two or three more lies. And so... Yes, I think it's very topical in that sense. And I also think that there seems, at least the way I read it, there seems to be this sort of interesting theme of a lack of skepticism. Or I guess there's plenty of skepticism, but no one is confident enough to, to speak up. And I think that 
that's something that this book doesn't do enough with this idea of being willing to question people who claim to sort of be, I guess, spokespeople for your religion and to have like a healthy kind of questioning, which not to keep referencing back to Prince Caspian. This is this is purely coincidence. <laughs> but at the end of that book, I remember lauding the fact that Reepicheep kind of challenges Aslan to repair Reepicheep's tail and Aslan's finally convinced. And there's this idea of questioning God and challenging God even uh, if you think doing something is right. And there's none of that here. And it's very clear that none of the Narnians are capable or willing to do that until basically it's too late. And I don't know. I just wish that had been explored a little bit more because I think people in general need to have a little more healthier skepticism about, well, everything, I guess. But religion in particular, for example, the idea that Trump is a Christian or is upholding Christian values. Like, okay, man, it's just clearly not true, but either because it's a sunk cost fallacy or they think the ends justify the means or whatever, they're willing to go along with the charade. And I think that this book, like many of these other books, puts that on the table and does nothing with it. It's interesting, sort of at face value, but I, I don't know. It doesn't really say anything about it. So it's kind of hard to evaluate the book on that. Yeah, I'm not sure that... It's interesting because I, I do think this book raises a lot of questions that are interesting. Um, and yeah, certainly there's something being said about religion and being, I think, interestingly, it's kind of like anti-organized religion. Yeah, yeah. It's very much like you need to have a personal enough relationship or like a true enough knowledge within yourself to be able to know like what Aslan would and wouldn't do or something like that. And then there's also... Yeah, some interesting stuff that's, like, fully not foreshadowed about what's going on with Tash and the color means, which, like, we've had no indication. We've heard about Tash before, but we've had no indication he's an actual creature or god or whatever he is. But suddenly we get him, and the color mean leader doesn't actually believe in Tash. But he manages to summon him by invoking him and... That's fascinating. That's like a really fascinating thing, but it is barely dealt with. So I, I do think there is at least more with the whole shift and the the talking animals phenomenon. But I'm I'm not sure quite what Clive is is saying. Yeah, we need to be questioning more the people at the top of things because they do question a lot. The talking animals raise a lot of questions. They're just sitting there asking questions and asking to see Aslan. Do you? Do you have some secrets? Forget it. Why don't you Why? tell me? Forget Come it, on. dude. Is it some secret? No, tell forget it. I'll talk to you later. And when they do see Puzzle as Aslan, they are convinced. So is it that in, there needs to be enough internal knowledge that like we're not convinced by people gaslighting us, essentially, and using fancy tricks? Is it about just the inherent, like, gullibility of people? Is it just that because Aslan's been gone for Narnia for so long, there's 
no longer a true understanding of Aslan in Narnia. I'm really not sure what's trying to be said here. Yeah. It's interesting, but I'm not getting a clear anything from it. Especially because, like, we've seen before, talking animals tend to be more connected to Aslan. I feel like in the past, there have been some exceptions, but there there tends to be, yeah. Reba Sheep is the one who is able to question Aslan and bring this up. And, like, the badger character, whose name I've forgotten, continues to hold on to the religion and believe in Aslan for ages. And it's, you know, other people, humans, dwarves, etc., who are more likely to not have this instinctive knowledge of Aslan. So it is weird that it's mostly the talking animals here who we see being bamboozled. We've been tricked. We've been backstabbed. And we've been quite possibly bamboozled. That's a good point, because at no point before this have we seen anyone been tricked before. Mm. And so this is all new territory, which is fine. It's great. I think it's bringing up a lot of interesting questions, and it's more applicable to everyday life but it's it's hard to reconcile that there's two layers to it there's the one layer where you just take this this book by itself and sort of judge it on its own merits where you can get all these interesting questions then there's the other issue the other layer where you try to reconcile this book with other books in this series and it doesn't make any sense because a lot of pieces have been set up in previous books but a lot of pieces haven't. And so you're operating in this like weird place where you have to fill in the gaps once again to make sense of this book as part of a larger series. But it like going back to the situation, it's also interesting that even though the animals are all very questioning and sort of very skeptical, they ultimately go along with what Shift says they should do, which at this point in the book is telling all the squirrels and stuff to go get him nuts because he wants he wants those nuts. He's big on the nuts. Get him some nuts. So it's like this lack of knowledge that leads to this lack of conviction to sort of stand up for themselves. And I think you bring up a good point. You brought up a good point about like, you know, maybe since Aslan has been gone for so long, people's knowledge of who Aslan is has degraded over time. And I actually did have a question I wrote in my notes about, like, who is teaching Narnians about Aslan? Where's the knowledge about Aslan coming from? The book does not address it. The book does not address how these animals, which in the last book, if you look at someone like Puddleglum, who is just so assured about who Aslan is, that he he's able with complete conviction to always call out the right thing to do in any given situation, how we go from there to here. And I don't think the book adequately explains that. And, and there needed to be something more there. And it's interesting because like, this is one of the shorter books I think for the series. And it's like, it could have expanded, I think a little bit more on that about where the corruption sort of keyed into here. Because this is not something where a monkey can, or I guess an ape, can come in and three days later, everything's f***ed. This has to be set up over years and years and generations and generations. You know, it, it puts me in mind, and it's almost remarkable that C.S. Lewis didn't use this, but like in the Bible, there are constantly these stories 
about whole generations of Israelites who turn away from God, either because the king is corrupt and, and turns everyone away and starts worshiping idols. But it's like this generational setup that leads to then some kind of plague or some kind of conquest where Israel's taken over. I'm about to sneeze. <laughs> now that I've said it, I don't think I'm going to sneeze. Look at a bright light. Well, what does a bright light do? I don't know. It either helps you sneeze or stops you from sneezing. Well, those are two very different outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but either way, it would work. Okay, it's. I feel it in the back of my nose. It's going to come. I think I, I can't be talking about it. Yes, so... Israel is set up where it turns away from God and then bad things happen. But there's some kind of basic setup for what's happening. Here, there isn't quite that. It feels like we're stuck in, in media res, but we're not provided all the necessary background to explain why we're in this particular position. Yeah. So kind of two points on that, because I was thinking while you were talking about like how, yeah, how would people be told about Aslan. And I think we do hear in some of the earlier books that, like, it's obviously something that, like, parents tell children these stories about Aslan. And, um, obviously, also, in a lot of previous books, like, people see Aslan. He goes out and does things. And I was trying to think, like, what's the last time we see Aslan in a, like, big group situation? Because, yeah, he shows up in the silver chair, but it's only to particular individuals or in his own country. And same with Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He is only showing up to certain people in certain moments. So I think unless he's like come and the kids haven't come, the last time there's been a big group who have seen Aslan, it's Prince Caspian, hmm. which is a long time ago for like a lot of people. So yeah, it would seem like for the common people, it has been a significant amount of time since they've been directly in contact with Aslan. So there seems like there is no big organized religion. So I, I feel like I can firmly say Clive is against organized religion now, <laughs> um, which makes sense with his entire policy of like power and just leaving people alone. So it's all been these generations of just parents telling kids, and it makes sense that at this point it's degraded without any reinforcement. But I, I did want to talk about it maybe sort of in conjunction with the other story of atheism we get in this book, which is Susan, because we obviously get Susan stopping believing in Narnia and therefore stopping believing in God. And clearly this book finally reveals it was Christianity all along. <laughs> but yes. I read a really interesting series of tweets, which I've lost. So credit to whoever said these. I'm sorry that I don't have your name. But talking about how it's interesting because Clive himself went through, like, a period of atheism when he was a young adult. Like, he was religious when he was younger, kind of lost his way, and then refound God. And so that Susan may, in some ways, be a mirror of his own experiences, except she's a woman, so it's about boys and makeup. Unless C.S. Lewis is secretly revealing that there is a brief period of time in his life where he was, you know, maybe... Maybe gender fluid. A big hit on the drag queen scene, you know? If you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Which, like, if so, good for you, Clive. But <laughs> it is interesting that he doesn't include these stories of, like, yeah, generational atheism, considering that he has experience with it himself and that he does have this other character in the same book who is going through what may be a lifelong atheism or just an atheistic phase. 
So I think it makes it all the weirder that like we haven't seen any questioning from the talking animals about their religion and that we only get just them no longer knowing it well enough to like recognize truth from fiction. Mm -hmm. Well, since you brought up Susan, I, I feel like this is probably as good a place to really get into that before we address like i don't know the racism in this story too there's so many things let's let's do the sexism and then the racism okay. so yeah i mean i don't know if you you want to start this discussion being as as uh well actually i have some experience with lipstick <laughs> so when i was a kid maybe five or six i snuck into my my parents bathroom well i guess i didn't really sneak i just walked in <laughs> And I rifled through my mom's drawers or whatever and found her lipstick. And I had seen her put on lipstick. And I'm like, I want to try this. So I take her lipstick and I just smear it all over my lips. I'm sure I looked horrifying. And I walk out. I remember I was, had a big old smile on my face. And I went to my mom and I said, look, mom, I'm pretty. <laughs> oh, that's cute. And, uh. Bless her heart, my mom was horrified by the scene, took me into the bathroom, cleaned me up, and uh, yeah, so I guess in C.S. Lewis's books, I'm doomed to hell. Yeah. So I think, yeah, one, it's interesting, I think we've remarked in past books about the build-up to this, which, like, it is foreshadowed. I will give Clive that. We see in Prince Caspian that Susan's the one who takes the longest to, like, be able to see Aslan again, and there's this uh, moment at the beginning of Voyage of the Dawn Treader where we find out, like, she's sort of the pretty one. She's the one who gets taken by her parents with them to America because she's, like, pretty and grown up and et cetera, et cetera. And Lucy has a whole thing about it. So, like, yeah, this is set up. I think the issue is, like, if there's one kid who goes through an atheistic phase or decides to stop believing in Narnia or whatever, that is fine. On the surface, that's kind of actually interesting. Like, amazing for them that they could pretend that the whole multiple experiences they went on were imaginary. The issue is, is that it is intrinsically linked to Susan's femininity and her interest in being grown up, but grown up specifically in a way where she enjoys pretty clothing, lipstick, makeup, boys... That's just sexist. Yeah, it's it's very gendered because even the idea of like how she wants to be a grown up is tied. You know, the book has the audacity to have Polly say this, which I want to get into the hypocrisy of this. But like Polly says about Susan, I wish she would grow up. She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now, which I guess is early 20s by this or late teens. Late teens, I think, which is horrifying. Yeah. And she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can and then stop there as long as she can. And I feel like given it's tied to like makeup and clothing and, and all, all that, that jazz, that it's a very gendered approach to this this idea of a like a fall from faith where it's tied to a certain age she wants to emulate and i don't think that's something that really applies to men or boys 
like, say if the situation was reversed and it was like Peter Hood falling from faith and the professor had said this same line about him, how he was racing to a certain age and wanted to stay there his entire life. It just wouldn't make sense. So it's like the, the logic behind it is very gendered in that it's suggesting that women are more susceptible to this line of thinking and falling out of faith as a result, which irks me because it's Polly saying this. And our only interaction with Polly in these books comes in The Magician's Nephew, where we see her on multiple occasions being fascinated by fashion and being, in fact, tricked by by fashion, by the pretty rings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, something I was thinking about the other day is that, like, fashion is a language. Mm -hmm. And what it seems like here is that it's a language that C.S. Lewis doesn't understand. So he thinks that it's inherently bad or dumb because he can't understand it. And that's so frustrating because like all the pieces are here to if you want to show Susan falling from faith, just make it about her like wanting to be a grown up. Don't tie it to like specific objects or items or if you're going to do that. Throw Peter in as well. Have Peter fall out of faith as well in in his own fashion, maybe in the same fashion that C.S. Lewis fell out of faith or have. I know this is going to hurt you, but I think logically speaking, if one of the men in this story was to become an atheist, it would probably be Edmund because he's the most, quote unquote, rational. There is a line earlier in this book where it sort of lampoons the idea of this sort of elitist thinking that like educated minds all know that gods are made up and you know aslan's made up so you know so like if anyone was gonna fall out of faith it would probably be edmund i'm sorry Morgan, but it's true if it weren't for the fact that he goes through the entire thing with the white witch and almost dying and as in redeeming him i would agree i would say that's probably a traumatic enough event to like solidly stick him to aslan faith maybe but yeah i i i mean that it's just ridiculous the idea that somebody would stop believing at all given what they've seen so it just makes it even more inherently insulting to suggest that susan because of lipstick and (laughs) nylons and men is willing to stop believing. Right. Um, so I'm going to talk about The Magician's, uh, I guess, books and TV show really briefly here, because I think that Lev Grossman, the author of the books, does an interesting take on Susan, sort of, in that he doesn't have a character stop believing, per se. But basically, premise of The Magician's is that, one, there's magic, but also that there is this series of books in the world that are like very clearly Chronicles of Narnia, in which three siblings travel to a magical land and get into all sorts of adventures and become kings and queens of the land. It's Narnia. And then our our main character of the books is obsessed with these books. And when he discovers magic exists, eventually discovers that these books are based on actual kids who actually did this and this land actually exists. But there's this this villain who is doing bad things. Not going to get into the plot of it, but spoilers for the magicians. If you don't want to get spoiled, skip ahead a little bit. Um, turns out the villain is one of the kids because 
some really bad stuff happens to him in his life, and he's no longer allowed to go to this magical land. It's called Villery. And so he decides to do anything to get back. And so, yeah, he becomes an evil person. He does a lot of really bad stuff and kind of falls out of faith with the gods of that land because they forbid him to come back because they no longer like him the way he is. In his particular case, what happens to him is that he's sexually assaulted, which makes the whole thing particularly gross of the gods of this other land. But in the case of Susan, I I would have loved to see a Susan who falls out of faith with Aslan because he says she's grown up and she can no longer come back. Yeah. And, and that continues to be a barrier for her in this. Because she is grown up in a particular way or wants particular things, she is not allowed access to the space. And I would love to see a Susan who deliberately turns her back on these things because it has turned its back on her. That's a good point about like trauma impacting faith, because like I know I think what kind of fueled C.S. Lewis's atheism is that his mom died when he was a kid. And honestly, like there are few things more traumatic than having a parent die prematurely like that and having to grow up with and and then also just like after his mom died like his relationship with his father completely fell apart so in a lot of senses he was made an orphan don't quote me on this but i'm sure that's a part of what fueled his fall from faith personally speaking you know we don't have to get too much into this but like for me what turned me away from the church was just like Watching this event that happened in my youth group, you know, I had been questioning up until then, but that was the nail in the coffin for me, seeing that kind of reaction. So I feel like this could have been a fantastic opportunity. Like you said, that would have been so cool if she had been nurturing this bitterness based on the fact that she was told she's never coming back. You know, it it has a vibes of of my fan fiction uh, with with the professor where the mom actually died and the professor would come back and kill aslan you killed my father prepare to die so that would have been cool that would have appealed to me to have susan well, it's also got lucifer vibes yeah i that's a great point i mean there's so much more opportunity here to say something interesting but he goes with the laziest option, which is that girls are, are vain. They like lipstick and that's going to stop them from believing in God. You stupid lame girls never learn. So dumb. It's so, so dumb. And it also I feel like it's contradicted because clearly C.S. Lewis does not see how that interest in makeup and fashion and whatever is reinforced by society and reinforced by men and like c.s lewis is so just ignorant of that that he can't even see his own contradiction because there's i can't remember i think it happens before or after that dialogue where they're describing how the kids all suddenly have this timelessness about their features where they look both like children and adults and specifically diggory and polly they're old by now they're like i don't know in their 80s or i don't know they're old and it describes how in this sort of Narnia heaven, Polly's like wrinkles and gray hairs are erased and she becomes more beautiful. And it's like, 
Clive <laughs> Face, do you not see what you're doing here? How you are participating in the very thing that you're admonishing as being the cause for Susan's downfall? And that's really just the worst bit of it. It's just that it's not even malicious. It's just lazy. And it's just like, you can do better, Clive. Do better. You know what? Everybody, everybody can do better. You, listening to this podcast, do better. <laughs> yeah, and, and as you pointed out earlier, Clive makes the decision to kill off the Pevensey's parents as well. So he leaves Susan, late teens, early 20s Susan, all alone. <laughs> and, and Yeah, she's f***ed. It's weird because I think it, the parents dying is like, basically reward for Lucy and Edmund and Peter. Like, they get to have their parents, too, right? Like, they're dead. That's sad. They died when... <laughs> okay. At least Lucy, Eustace, and Jill, I think, are still technically children. I think they all must be less than 18. I mean, Eustace and Jill certainly are. I'm guessing Lucy's probably, like, only 15 or 16, and Edmund's probably under 18, too. So, like, Clive has killed off children. <laughs> Let's make this clear. This is seen as a good thing. It's not. So they get to have their parents, and this is good for them, right? They don't have to be in heaven without their parents. Yeah. And their parents don't have to have their kids die. That's great. But, like, what Clive doesn't seem to realize is this is also punishment for Susan. That Susan is totally alone. Susan's only remaining relatives that we know of are Eustace's parents, who were shown are miserable people. <laughs> so... There there have been a couple of people um, online who I've seen just, like, looking around about, you know, talking about Susan dealing with this, writing fan fiction about Susan having to deal with this, which is fascinating, and, like, go all of those people. But, like, how how is Susan ever going to return to Narnia or Faith or whatever after this? After her entire family dies in a railway accident? Right. What does Clive want from her? But yes, I do think it's especially also insulting in some ways because we get, I really like in some ways the scene with, I forget his name and it's not important, but the Collarman soldier who... Oh, it's like E-Myth? Yeah, but the, there's the scene where, you know, he explains his whole deal and how he's been a good, true worshiper of Tash and everything. And that, yeah, his his prayers all this time were going to Aslan and not Tash, which, like, theoretically is a great concept. It's something I've always, when I was religious, it was something that I chose to believe about Christianity. That, because obviously there are so many versions of Christianity where they're like, if you don't believe our particular brand of whatever, you are going to hell. Which I think is a bad concept for yes. religion. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad. Uh, if 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 your religion says that people have to believe a certain thing in order to get in, it's bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> um. So I always liked the idea that like you could believe the wrong thing, but as long as you were a good person, you could get into heaven. So you know that that is a nice moment. But yeah, when it's contrasted with poor Susan, it just makes it more clear that like. Clive has an issue with Susan, and uh, someone online also pointed out that, like, Puzzle, who goes along with this entire scheme, who has been abused, and, like, let's not, we see in the beginning that he is, you know, in a very abusive relationship with Shift, in which he's constantly told, 
how horrible he is for not doing things for Shift and how he's a bad friend and how Shift does all these things for him. It's very toxic. And that's how he gets into the situation. And I don't want to make light of that. But, like, you know, Puzzle's also forgiven for helping bring about the end of the entire world. (laughs) (laughs) Yet somehow, Susan (laughs) is penalized for the lipstick. Right. And it's even in the case of Emif, like, the narrative explains that in this stable, so the original plan for Ginger the cat, who at a certain period I forgot his name or her name its name its name uh so i just called it garfield but uh garfield is supposed to walk into the shack the stable and pretend that it's frightened by whatever it sees in there and then shift would send in the animals that he doesn't like and there was a a color mean sitting in there with a sword who was going to murder them all and so later in the book we see that emith goes into the stable, sees this color mean, has a fight with him, and kills him. I I imagine it's the first and only death to take place in Narnia heaven. <laughs> I feel like that should be significant somehow. Like, even though he's it's self-defense and, you know, it's not like he's doing it for malicious reasons, but he still murdered a guy in Narnia heaven. Yeah. <laughs> There was the whole big deal about Diggory bringing Jadis into just normal Narnia. Right. It's like, you've already soiled Narnia heaven. It's weird. And it it just makes it so weird that Susan is being punished for something that is truly so, so trivial. And I think uh, some people theoretically could argue that's kind of the point because... Susan has become obsessed with something so trivial. But again, it's she's not the first character to be interested in fashion. So the idea that she's the one who gets punished for that, it's just, at best, it feels mean-spirited. And at worst, it's it's just sending a message to little girls like, hey, you know how you like to play with fashion and play dress-up? and play with makeup, and do this and that, well, that's going to send you to hell. So don't do that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think this is the, uh, there's the whole, like, not like other girls phenomenon, which continues to be an issue in literature for young women to this day. The idea that, like, being not like other girls is preferable. That things that are traditionally feminine are bad. These are things that are often drilled into young women from a very young age. I mean, like, I read this book. Certainly, I received that message. There were other books that were also aimed at me as a child that had similar messaging. And, like, you know, I I like to think I'm over it and enlightened now, but, like, probably not. I probably still have some residual sexist ideas myself that have been drilled into me by books like this, doing things like this. That's why it's bad. (laughs) Kaiman does an actively bad thing here. So, you know what? I People might also make the argument that Susan is not dead yet and therefore gets to continue trying to get into Narnia heaven. That she's not, you know, totally doomed. She hasn't been sent to the Shadowlands. With all those hyenas. The implication is certainly that she has been excluded from this place. And I think that regardless of whether or not 
in the future of her life, she regains faith and gets into Narnia heaven. That's not what we're left with as readers. So that hypothetical future, none of them raises that hypothetical. There's no line where Aslan's like, and hopefully someday your sister Susan will join us. Mm. There's nothing brought up that implies that that is a potential future for her. So I think that unfortunately we're left with the implication that Susan is going to hell for like lipstick. <laughs> Catch the next part next week on Reread for one last time. Well, at least for Chronicles of Narnia. See you then. Oh.